We're going to be in uh, Hebrews for just a little bit, and then we're going to go to several different places. You may want to try to keep up, follow along, but main thing is listen and maybe write down some scripture verses. It's probably a good idea to have a pen and a notebook or use your bulletin. We have a little space in the bulletin for sermon notes, and you may want to write down some of these things because you always want to check the preacher out, make sure he's telling you the right thing. And, we, and you want to meditate on this word. You may want to, after listening to it, you may want to go and read some of these scriptures throughout the week. Let's go to Hebrews to start with. We've, we've been trying to get through Hebrews 11 for a long time but I keep getting other things that uh, I want to go over with you and teach. So I was struggling with exactly what to put together, and so I decided that we would at least do a few verses in Hebrews 11 so we can kind of move along. But I'm seeing something in this that goes along with what we're doing on Wednesdays, And I really encourage you to, if you can, listen to the Wednesday night uh, Bible teaching. And we've been covering some really good stuff. So I just wish everybody could hear all of it because it all kind of ties together. So, all right, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 20, 21 and 22. Hebrews 11, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Notice it says concerning things to come. Now, not seeing. Remember last week we talked about how blessed we are because we can believe through faith having not seen. And we talked about Thomas and how the Lord told him, you know, you have seen and believed, but blessed are those who have not seen or who are not going to be able to see this, but they're going to believe. And that's talking about us even today. So the, uh, 11.1, the very first verse of chapter 11, now faith is the sub- substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So why, was it, why, why did, did Isaac... And uh, Jacob and Esau, why are they here in this famous faith chapter? Um, By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was a dying, blessed both of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. You ever wondered why that would be there? Leaning upon the top of his staff. Why did he have a staff? And why would he lean on it? Did he wrestle with God? He put up a good fight, but then he was touched on his hip. He walked with the limp the rest of his life. He needed that thing, and he always had that reminder. And he believed what his father said. Because he believed that his father got the word from God, and now he's passing it on to his sons. You know, 
from, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and by faith, Jacob, he's passed it down to his son Joseph and to Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh being the firstborn, but Ephraim being above him. Just like Esau was born before Jacob, but Jacob was over him. Adam was first, but Jesus came second. Jesus is above Adam. He came to fix what Adam lost. 22, by faith, Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. And that's all that's said. But what's so faithful about that? Well, he's believing what his father has told him and what his father before him had told him, and he's, he's believing generations of men who believed God, and, they, and you can tell they believed God by their actions. What they actually did proved that they really believed what God said, and Joseph believes that, and it's probably going to be another 300 years before God comes down and visits them in Egypt and takes them out and takes them to that promised land. And Joseph is showing how much he believes what God has said over what things look like in reality on this earth. Joseph, he's dying in Egypt. He's not seeing the promises. But he's so excited about his people one day going to the promised land, and he's like, don't you leave my bones here. He wants his bones to be in that promised land, so one day in the resurrection, when he comes up out of that grave, he'll be, he'll be where he's supposed to be. But just think about how much he's showing he believes because of telling them what to do with his bones when they go back. And sure enough... <clears throat> They took them. They took them. So you, you see how in these three verses that it has passed on from generation to generation. And we can trust the Word of God. Now I'm going to share something now, this little book right here. I'm going to read that goes right along with these three verses. If you want to know anything about this book I'm reading out of, come see me after. This is only going to take a few minutes, and then we're going to go to some other parts of the Bible. And uh, I'm going to just share something that has been on my heart for the last uh, week or so. And it goes right along with what we're doing here in Hebrews as far as what we are supposed to do to show that we really believe what we say we believe. The promises passed to Abraham's seat. You've just heard all the generations. I've just mentioned them. And the promises have passed down through each one of them. Hebrews 11.20 continues to follow the lineage of Abraham as they walk in faith of their father, anticipating the time when they would increase in number as the visible stars and inherit the promised land, then occupied at that time would, would have been occupied by the Philistines and the Canaanites. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Isaac passed on, uh, passed on to his son Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the blessings promised to the seed of Abraham, saying, Let the people serve thee, and nations bow down to thee. Be 
Be Lord over thy brethren, and let thy mother's sons bow down to thee. Cursed be everyone that curseth thee, and blessed be he that, that blesseth thee. And that's in Genesis 27, 29. Isaac's blessing reveals his confidence in the promises made to his father Abraham. For he uses the very words God had spoken many years earlier. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. In Genesis 12, uh, 12 verse 3. Isaac's son Jacob got off to a good start producing a nation, for he had 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. He taught them to anticipate the fulfillment of the promises made to great-grandfather Abraham. Years later in Egypt, when he lay dying, he called two grandsons in, sons of Joseph, and laying hands upon them, asked God to bless the lads and let and let my name be named on them and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. His blessing reveals that his life was driven by anticipation of, of the promises. There was no question in his mind that his descendants would grow into, into a multitude in the midst of the earth. He had faith in the words of his grandfather who received words from God. Today, you and I have faith in the words of God recorded in the Holy Bible. Do you believe it? <clears throat> Jacob and his 12 sons, along with their children, had left the promised land and were living in Egypt to escape a famine in Canaan. But Joseph, believing the promises of God, knew there would come a time when they would return to the land God had promised. So by faith, when he died made mention of the, of the departing of the children of Israel. Notice it says, when he died. It actually says, when he died, uh, made mention. Notice the order of that. Now, before that, it said, uh, talking about um, Jacob, when he was a dying. So it, that's a little more clear to us. So in, he's about to die, and he's doing these things. Well, if you, know, if you only read 22, by faith, when he, Joseph, when he died, he wouldn't have said anything. If he's already died, he wouldn't make mention of his bones. Right? Now, that's, that makes, we can figure this out on our own. It's saying basically the same thing it said about Jacob. At the time he was about to die, he made mention of his bones being taken to the promised land. Okay, but there's other places in the King James Bible where it says things like this, where if you read it literally, it will say, he, you, know, you could say, well, he died. Oh, wow, he spoke after he died. Wow, you know, and make some weird thing out of it. But there's other places in the Bible that have things reversed to where it doesn't make sense by how we speak today, okay? Now, the reason I bring that up is because if I happen to read something, uh, I don't know if we'll get to it today, but eventually, here soon, I'll probably read something, and, I, and I'm going to refer you back to this because it's out of order. Different languages put things in different orders. The English language, we like to describe things before we ever talk about what we're talking about. We will say uh, the big 
red, two-story, you're, you're, you're getting it, house. As we describe it, you might start to, oh, they're talking about a house before we ever say the house. But in Spanish, they think that's ridiculous. All right, let's talk about the house. Let me, uh, the house, grande, and whatever the word for red is, you know, it's, it's the house is big and red and two-story. Right? It, that's a, it makes a little more sense to go ahead and get what we're talking about, the main point out first, and then describe it. <clears throat> so different languages do things differently, whether it's right or wrong or better or worse, we don't know, but we figure it out. We end up figuring it out. So uh, paying attention to those details is important. Understanding how the King James Bible was translated. The translators were so scared of messing anything up because they knew the word. And they knew that if they were to add something, ooh, that would be really, really bad. If they were to miss something, that would be really, really bad. And they were so adamant about doing it word for word, they, they did not take the liberty in a lot of places in the Bible to turn it around to where it would flow better and make more sense to us today. And we need to make sure we understand that. A lot of the new translations have a good uh, intention of making it easier to read, but what they've done in most cases, if not all cases, they've, they have lost out on some accuracy. Some way worse than others. And you've, you've already heard me talk about that before, and I've given you lots of examples. So anyway... Uh, I'm going to finish reading this. This, this is uh, important. When I get to the end of this, I'm almost done with this. Just a few more paragraphs, and then we're going to go back to the Bible. The faith was not an inner resource they conjured up to obtain a homeland. They were not naming it so they could claim it. Does that sound familiar? I like this guy who wrote this, but I'm not telling you his name. You have to come to me afterwards if you want to know any information about this. They were not naming it so they could claim it. They didn't believe in the power of a positive confession. They were not attempting to manifest their faith. It was as faith always is, confidence in the word and character of another. Faith does not generate or produce a reality. Do we try to build up faith or have enough faith so something will happen? Well, God's already done it. God's already figured it all out. We just need to follow along with Him and do what He said. It's already done. They didn't, they didn't, have, they didn't have to build up faith, and I'm trying to explain what He's saying here. They didn't have to build up faith to make what God said come to pass. They didn't have to do that. But for them to be part of going into the promised land, they needed to have faith in the God who already did it all. His promises are good. You know, we make promises, and sometimes we don't follow through with them. When God makes promises, he is going to follow through with them. So you can have faith in that. All right. 
Now, evangelism, what does that mean? What does evangelism mean? And so this past Tuesday or Monday at our council meeting, did a little short devotional about uh, evangelizing. And I, I just want to share a few things about it. Is every single person in the church supposed to evangelize? Should everybody do it to some degree or another? We should. We should. Is there a specific gifting of evangelism that one person in this church might have? Yeah, that's true too. And uh, do you believe that God touches the hearts of, of people? Do you believe he does that? In, in 1 Samuel 10, 26, that's when Saul is being anointed king, and they send everybody home, and Saul goes home, and all the men that were with him went, and it says that those men were the men whose hearts God had touched. So yes, the Bible says that God touches the heart, the hearts of men. In Proverbs 11.30, it says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. And he that winneth souls is wise. Do you know that was in the Bible? Proverbs 11.30. And he that winneth souls is wise. So, you ever heard preachers say you need to be a soul winner? They get it from right there. So we need to go out and be a soul winner. Win souls for Christ. Now, in... Uh, in the Gospel of John, in, in, in John 1, I'll go ahead and turn there. I got John 3 marked, so I'll be able to find it pretty quick. <clears throat> Make sure I, I remember what I'm getting ready to tell you. In John 1, you have John the Baptist himself who is pointing people to Jesus, right? So there's John the Baptist being an evangelist. He's, he's telling people about Jesus. He's the forerunner, and he's paving the way for, G, for this Jesus that's coming. And he sees Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. We should be able to proclaim that. As we live our life, we need to just say, Look, there he is, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. What's wrong with that? That's a good message to give to people. And they're like, what? Lamb of God, what are you talking about? It's Jesus. And explain it to them. We should know enough about the Word of God and what we call the plan of salvation. We should know enough about it to be able to just tell people about it from the heart. Memorizing Scripture, where things are in the Bible, is very important so that we can uh, quickly uh, just be able to answer somebody when they have a question. Very important. Then when you go over uh, to, let's see, let's see, Andrew, and, all right, in 40, Andrew is one of the two disciples, and it says in 41, 
he first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. So Andrew went and found Peter and brought him to Jesus. And then, go down to uh, 44, or 43, And the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and find a Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Look what Philip does. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Nathanael is, is uh, sought after by Philip. So you see how this is progressing? One person knows somebody. So Andrew has a brother. That's who he goes. So do you have a brother or a sister that you can go and talk to and say, I found him. Who'd you find? Jesus, I found him. Come and see. I want to show you. I want to introduce you to him. Or a friend. You got your immediate family members, people that only you might be able to reach. There's people that you may work with that only you would be able to reach them. Every single person has somebody. I've shared this story many times. Remember how Charles Spurgeon was converted? Remember that story? He was, a, he was the son of religious men. And he thought he was saved because he was part of the church. But he was miserable because he really didn't understand salvation for himself. Charles Spurgeon was on his way to church because he was very religious. He was very young. He was like 15. And he's on his way to church, and there was this unbelievable blizzard hit. This is over in England. And he's on his way to his church, and he stopped because it was so bad, he saw this old Methodist church, and he went in there. Not his denomination, but he went in there. And there was people gathered, but not many because of the snowstorm. The preacher of that church had not showed up, and nobody knew where he was, but probably got held up in the snowstorm and decided not to come. I don't know why they didn't text him or something, but... <clears throat> so, so he's not there. Now, Charles Spurgeon comes in to get out of this terrible snowstorm, and he's standing over to the side, because he's you know, not real comfortable there. And a shoemaker is sitting out in the pews, and he's looking around, and it's time to start, and he's going, well, somebody's got to do something. And he gets up, and he walks up, and he gets up there, and he opens the Bible up to Isaiah, and he starts preaching out of Isaiah, and he's not a preacher. And he, maybe he has never taken the message to anybody else in the whole world. And he lived his little quiet life, and the only thing he ever did was get up that day and come up and he looks over and he sees this young man who looks kind of miserable and he says, and he looks right at him and he says, you sir, you are miserable and you need to look at God. And, and, and he, he read that, I can't remember the scripture right off, but he, he was reading out of Isaiah and he, and he said, look unto God and 
Anyway, whatever he read really hit Charles Spurgeon in the heart, and he, right then and there, believed on the Lord Jesus. Was it worth that one conversion? If that's the only one he ever converted? How many thousands upon thousands of people came to the Lord because of Charles Spurgeon's preaching? What if that guy was too intimidated to get up and to share the message? Would Charles Spurgeon not have been saved that day? Would, we don't know. We have no idea of what might have happened to him that day. We don't know. So the, the one person you might bring to the Lord, that one person, you never know what they might do. So don't think, think it's insignificant that you're not a great evangelist and you don't have hundreds come to the Lord. You might just need to touch that one person and then not even know what they do the rest of your life until you get to heaven and then you might know about it. You know, when Andrew shows up again in uh, John 6, he's introducing, they had a problem. They had, they had 5,000 that needed to be fed. And they're like, well, how are we going to feed all these people? And it was Andrew who said, hey, this little boy here has got a lunch. <laughs> but, but what's these few loaves and few fishes for all these people? And Jesus like, oh, yeah, I can use that. And he fed everybody. And then another time, the next time you see Andrew is in chapter 12 of John, and he's gone away and he's actually introducing some Gentiles to Jesus. Point people to what the Word of God says. Know the Word of God yourself so you can tell people about it. You need to have confidence in it. It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Remember, it is the Word of God applied by the Spirit of God that produces conviction of sin, generates faith in the hearer, and produces the new birth. And 1 Peter 1.23 says, being born again, not of corruptible seed. Now, I told the guys at the jail, I said, uh, you know, what I say, if I came in here and I just told you about what I wanted to tell you, that's corruptible seed. You can't trust it. But I come in here and I read the Word of God to you and I preach the Word of God, but of incorruptible. This is incorruptible seed. By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. That's how you're uh, born again, of, of what's in this Bible. All right, a couple questions for you. I've actually had some questions already, but here's, here's some questions to think about. Questions to ask yourself. Ask yourself, do I really believe that God wants to save men? Do you really believe it in your heart that God wants to save men? 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. Listen, this is verse 3 and 4 of 1 Timothy 2. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved, and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. That's God's will. 
Listen to this. This is 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Any and all, not just a select few, as some denominations would teach. Uh, go, we're, I'm here in John, uh, so every, almost everybody knows John 3.16, but look at the verse before it and that verse and the verse after it. John 3.15 says that whosoever believeth, did you see that? Whosoever believeth, in him should not perish but have eternal life. 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 17, for God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. In Psalm 106, when Steve started talking about Psalm 10 and he said 3, I'm like, ooh, that was close. 106, 21 says, They forgot God their Savior, which had done great things in Egypt and wondrous things in Ham. I don't have, I have that part right, written down. Wondrous things in Ham and terrible things at the Red Sea. And when the King James Bible says terrible, it means awesome. Uh, uh, just catastrophic. Whoa, it blow your mind. God, their Savior. God describes himself as a Savior seven times in the Old Testament. Seven times in the Old Testament. Right here in 106, and then the rest of them are in Isaiah. Anywhere from chapter 43 all the way to 63. The other six times. 1 Timothy... 1.1, 1, 1, Paul's introducing himself, and he says in 1 Timothy 1.1, 1, 1, he says in, the, in that opening verse of that chapter, it says, uh, you'll see, God our Savior. And then when you go over to chapter 4, 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 4, verse 10 says, For, therefore, we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach, verse 11. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm commanding them and I'm teaching them to you. And you can do likewise. Now, when uh, last week we were talking about Jesus being going to, just appearing in the upper room, and his disciples were there. The first time, Thomas wasn't there. And then the second time he shows up, eight days later, Thomas is there. But Jesus came and he said to them, The Father has sent me into this world. Now I'm sending you. Jesus himself told the disciples, Because of what I came down here to do, you are going to carry it on. And the disciples went out and took that message out to all kinds of others. 
And it has gone all the way down to you and me today sitting right here. And we are instructed to do the same thing. Jesus has, call, has called us to go out and to command and teach these things, the things of God that are in our Bibles. We're supposed to do that. So God himself calls himself a Savior, and he's referred to as a Savior uh, seven times in the Old Testament, at least six times in the New Testament. Now, I could give you so many more scriptures, but I'm going to go to question number two. Second question, ask yourself this. Do I believe that God can, can save men instantly and completely through human going out and evangelizing? Do you think it can happen? Do you believe God can use you? Are you willing to let God use you? Now I'm going to read out of Acts. I'm at Acts 15, 5 through 11. Acts 15, 5 through 11. This is after the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles and the Gentiles are coming into the church and then there was contention amongst them. But there rose up certain of, certain of the sect of the Pharisees which, be, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for two, for two, because to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did unto us talking about them being Jews and receiving it first at Pentecost, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. They believe something. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of of the Lord Jesus, we shall be saved even as they. After much disputing, Peter put an end to the disputing right there. Now, what are some examples of individuals going out and sharing the word that we have in our Bibles? Yeah, I wrote down Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. Philip was instructed to go somewhere, and he went, and that Ethiopian was in his chariot. He was traveling back to Ethiopia, and he had Scripture with him. And he's reading Isaiah, and he can't quite figure it out, and Philip is there who was able to explain it to him, and a salvation happened. Philip, one-on-one -on -one with the Ethiopian eunuch. There's an example, Acts 8. Uh, 
Peter, what I just read to you out of 15, is probably making reference to him not being willing to go into a Gentile's house. Oh no. But God's showing him that the Gentiles were going to be able to be clean, just like the Jews. And he witnessed it himself when Peter went down to Cornelius' house. Awesome story. That's in 10. I want to read it so bad. Read that on your own. Acts 10, 23 through 48. I mean, you actually have to go before that to get that, the setup to it. But when he shows up, um, all right, I, need, I need to show you something in here. All right, here, just go ahead and go there. Acts 10. I got to show something to you. All right, in 23. Then called, them, then called he them in and lodged them. And on the morrow, Peter went away with them, and certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him. And the morrow, after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and had called together his kinsmen and near friends. Cornelius isn't even saved yet. But he's seen something pretty amazing. So, you, you know, it's... it's He's got an advantage over most, but he has sent for Peter. Peter is coming, and he's so excited about what Peter's going to bring to them. He's so excited about this that he has called for, called together his kinsmen, all, the, all of his relatives. You know, do we get excited about the Word of God enough to where we call up and try to drag all of our relatives to church with us. And, and near friends, and your friends. Cornelius did, and he wasn't even saved yet. That's just one part of that story I thought I'd share. Part of evangelizing. Being excited about, if you, if you really believe that this word of God is what saves you, so you need to be able to you need to know that a person needs to understand that they're lost, that they're guilty, and that they cannot do anything about it of themselves to fix it. It's impossible. You need to be able to show people like Jesus at the well and the way he talked to the woman at the well. He didn't say, you dirty, rotten, blah, blah. He just started talking about her life, and it started to convict her, and she knew she was a sinner. She understood, you know what, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. And he didn't have to tell her. The people you're going to minister to, they already know they're dirty, rotten sinners. They know it. It's, it's inside of them. They know it. But you make sure that they understand they'll never be able to fix it themselves. And that if they spend the li their lifetime trying to, they're going to die and go to hell forever. But you have the answer. You have the way for them to have all of that debt of sin wiped out completely, and you're good to go. <clears throat> Very important that people understand that. Because you're like, what do I need to be saved from? What do I, what do I need a Savior for? Make sure they understand why they need a Savior. Then introduce them to the Savior. And then 
you need to, to, to read enough, preach enough, tell them enough about the Word, and then you should have prayed beforehand that the Holy Spirit will get involved and touch their hearts. And as you're telling them about the Word of God, their soul is being enlightened, and at the very same time, the Holy Spirit will convict them, and then a conception will happen, and there'll be a new birth. Amen. Awesome. Okay, that's another one person going to see another person who has gathered up a whole bunch of relatives and friends, so he ends up going in and speaking to a bunch of them. All right, well, here's another one. In uh, 16 of Acts, Paul and Silas, maybe you need to be a helper to someone who's going out and evangelizing like Silas was for Paul. Where's Barnabas at? Paul and Silas are getting ready to go to uh, Philippi. Where's Barnabas? Well, if you read right before this story in uh, uh, Acts 16, Paul and Barnabas were together, ministering together, going on a missionary trip. Well, they're getting ready to go on another missionary trip, and if you remember, Barnabas said, uh, we need to take John Mark with us. What did Paul do? Absolutely not. He bailed out on us before, don't you remember? I don't trust him. And Barnabas, being way more forgiving than Paul at that, uh, for that situation, uh, he's trying to convince Paul, come on, give him a second chance. And the contention was so bad between them, this is two men of God, that they were split asunder, they, they had to go their separate ways. So Barnabas goes with uh, John Mark, and then Paul picks up Silas, and then they go to Philippi. And after they were wanting to go to Asia, Holy Spirit wouldn't let them go there. Then they want to go to Bithynia, Holy Spirit forbid them to go there. It, it says they essayed to go to Bithynia, which means that their purpose was to go there. We should have plans. We should say, you know what, I'm going over there, and I'm going to minister to those people right over there, and you, you go. Holy Spirit might get, you might end up over here. But if you just sit around and go, well, I don't know if I really should go there. They're probably pretty mean over there. It's dangerous over there. And just sit there and do nothing. God's not going to use you. But you need to be like them and say, you know what? I know they need some gospel. I'm going there. And start going there. If the Holy Spirit don't want you to go there, He's going to turn you where you need to go. But get going. Start the process. Make a decision to do something, the Holy Spirit will start to guide you and send you. And Lydia ended up coming to true salvation. Then that young damsel who was, had the evil spirit where she was able to soothsay, and her, her, the two captors you know, made money off of her, and then they cast the spirit out of her, and then the, her, the people who were profiting off of her were so mad that they get Paul and Silas thrown into prison after being beaten mercilessly. So, Paul and Silas and the Philippian jailer. That's the one time that somebody actually asked, what must I do? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
What must I do to be saved? So that story is Acts 16, 22 to 34. My pages keep turning back over on me. All right, where's that question at? 30. What, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, here's the perfect opportunity to have a whole list of things you've got to do to be saved. Well, let's read that list. It's got to be here. Let's read the list. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. What? That's the shortest list I think I've ever seen. Wow. But look at what they did beforehand to convict the heart of this Philippian jailer. Beaten, falsely accused, thrown in prison, their freedom gone, after doing nothing but good, preaching the gospel, Lydia becoming saved, this, this damsel who was tormented by the evil spirit, and they cast the spirit out of her. They did nothing but good, and when they went into that jail, they should have, you know, nobody could blame them if they were in a really bad mood. It's like, God, how, how, why did you leave us? Why are you not with us, protecting us from all this bad stuff that's happening to us? And not, I'm not praying to you, God. I'm not singing praises to you. They could have done all that. But no, they prayed, they sang praises. When anybody else could have been in a real rotten mood. But when everything was horrible, they were happy and praising the Lord, singing songs, and that convicted all the other inmates, and it definitely convicted the jailer, because when all the doors, was it an earthquake? And all the doors came open, and they could leave. They all, it, was all, it was wide open. Some people might say, well, there's your sign. Get out. And they, they, they would have been justified in leaving. And what was the jailer getting ready to do? Kill himself. They were more concerned about the person who had mistreated them, that was their enemy, they were more concerned about him than their own freedom. And all the other inmates stayed with them. Nobody had left. They had touched the hearts of a bunch of people in that jail. And then when the jailer asked, Sirs, what must I do? The thing is, it's not about what you do. That was, that was the thing of the question. What must I do? There's nothing you can do. All you can do is believe on the one who went to the cross for you, took your place there, bled and died for you, took on all the punishment that you deserved, believe on him, and you too can be saved. And all your house, all of the people that are around you should believe as well. Should. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that each and every one of us will have a, a heart for the, for the men and women, the people of this world. Father, we ask that you would uh, help us to see those opportunities when they present themselves.
and that we would have boldness to speak your word. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.